Do you know how to minister? Simply, ministry is service. But it's not just for those that go into what is called full-time ministry. In essence, it's not just for pastors and missionaries and uh, individuals like that. To be in a local church, to be a believer, is to be able to serve, to minister. But we need to know how to minister. God wants us to minister in the right way. And as we come to our passage this morning, we see that Paul's ministry in Thessalonica gives us three pictures of how to minister in the right way. I'm not going to take the time to read the whole chapter here at the beginning. We'll we'll work our way through it as we go. But we'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, as we go into chapter 2, while it's not directly said, it appears that though that some outside of the church, likely unbelieving Jews or even some of the unbelieving Greeks in the area, were claiming that Paul was a more or less of a con man that preached wrongly, motivated by greed, and since he was chased from town, hasn't returned because he was afraid. So chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians addresses these charges, and Paul reminds the Thessalonian church of his conduct, his lifestyle, and his behaviors with them. And not just his alone, but uh, as he writes from Paul and Silas and Timothy, their behaviors and lifestyle to them. So we'll get started here. We'll pick up right away 1 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our that our coming was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For your exhortation did not for our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, or a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. So here in verses 1 through 6 of of 1 Thessalonians 2, we see our first picture that God wants us to minister as faithful stewards. God wants us to minister as faithful stewards. Paul begins here in verses 1 and 2 of how he and Silas came to town with their came to town uh, that time in Thessalonica, and that it wasn't without benefit. It wasn't in vain. Now, I don't know if you caught it, but four times in chapter 2, Paul uses the noun, the verb, you know. Three of those times occurred in verses 1 to 6. Two of them in verses 1 and 2. You yourselves know, brethren, and then down in verse 2, as you know. So he is already reminding them. He's already wanting to bring to mind to remember what their ministry looked like when they were in Thessalonica. 
Paul continues by stressing to them that he and the others, that he and Silas and Timothy, did not come on a leisure tour or on a vacation. They came with purpose. They came from Philippi, where they had been insulted, beaten, and wrongly imprisoned for preaching the gospel. See Acts 16. <laughs> Yet despite that treatment in Philippi, they came boldly to Thessalonica to preach the same message. Verse 3 seems to be a summary of some of the charges that were brought against the missionaries and the gospel, uh, and the gospel there. there. It is used, uh, they, he has three descriptive terms there, excuse me. Remembering without ceasing your, whoops, that's wrong, right chapter. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. So the first descriptive term here is error. The idea of the word is wandering from a, the path of truth, even wandering, uh, even having a wrong view of God. So they did not come in error. They did not come with a, a wrong view of God or wandering from the path of truth. They came preaching the gospel. They came preaching the truth of God. They didn't come in error. They didn't preach in error or in uncleanness. The word Paul uses here has a figurative sense, uh, and it implies a state of moral corruption. The idea in this passage is that of impure motives. We didn't come with impure motives. We didn't come with the wrong view of God uh, preaching for you to go down the wrong path. No, we came preaching the truth, we did, and we came in with pure motives. Now this last one, or in deceit. The word here for deceit has the idea of taking advantage with craft or underhanded methods. And that's why I said earlier that the charges seem to be that they're calling Paul a, a con man. He came in, greed, in greediness and wrong motives just to lead the... The, the Thessalonians down the wrong path to get some money and get out of town. And that's obviously why he hasn't come back, right? That's what they're hearing. But Paul's reminding them of what really happened. Paul stresses that these three uh, descriptive terms, is, this is not how they came. This is not what the evidence is. And he, he gives evidence that he reminds them that he and the team had been approved by God and entrusted with the message of the gospel. If they were in error or underhanded, then the ministry would not have been as genuinely successful as it was. He already went over in, in chapter 1 that what the, the, the turnaround that had happened in Thessalonica is sounding forth all over the place, that when he goes into town, he doesn't need to tell them about, he doesn't need to hold Thessalonica up as an example. Everyone's already heard of Thessalonica and what his ministry had been there. There was genuine success with the Thessalonian believers, and that is a mark of their message, their being there as being approved by God. Paul reminds them that he did not even speak concerning pleasing men. 
but he spoke, they spoke as God's messengers. So they sought to please God with how they lived and how they spoke and what they preached. Because he knows that God tests or examines or proves the heart. They weren't worrying about pleasing men. They were worried about pleasing God through their speech and their actions. Paul then expands upon this in verses 5 and 6. He reminds the Thessalonians that the missionaries didn't use flattery to impress them or, uh, or under a pretext of greed. And while the apostles or messengers of Christ, they could have made demands of honor and glory due to them from the Thessalonians, they didn't. They weren't seeking praise or anything from those to whom they were ministering. Their concern, first and foremost, was to please God, but secondly, was so the Thessalonians would understand that they would come to accept Christ and that they would continue to grow. They put the Thessalonian believers before themselves. Now, there were traveling preachers and philosophers that would go around similar to the apostles, similar even to what Jesus did. But many of these itinerant speakers would do so just to build a following and make a profit. So the idea of these con men going out there was not a foreign idea. It happened. In the Gospels, we never see a record that Jesus did this, that when he went out, he wasn't there seeking a prophet. He was trying to preach the gospel. He was trying to present the kingdom, and he was getting, he was calling repentance from Israel. So in one ways, yes, he was seeking a following, but he wasn't after prophets, and neither were the apostles. And as he, when he sent out, when Jesus sent out the 12 in Matthew chapter 10 and Mark 6, and even in Luke 9, he gave them instruction not to take money with them and not to acquire money while they were out. So Paul and his team were not seeking such things as they traveled and ministered. Paul will discuss this a little further in another few verses. So in these verses, what do we see? Well, we see the boldness of Paul and Silas amidst the opposition in Philippi and the opposition that began in Thessalonica. It showed that God was at work through these servants and proved their genuineness. As stewards of God, stewards of the gospel message, Paul and Silas were more concerned with pleasing the Lord than they were about being approved by men. And more than receiving any honor or praise from the Thessalonians or anyone else that they ministered to. Paul would later write to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 17, he says, For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. As disciples of Jesus, we are stewards of this mission and his message, the gospel. 
we are each responsible before the Lord for the proclamation of the gospel as well as an adherence to proper biblical teaching. And part of ministering the right way is being faithful stewards. We have been given a stewardship of the gospel, and as stewards we are responsible for how we manage what our Lord has entrusted to us. Some of us that enter full-time ministry have a greater stewardship, but each believer has been given this stewardship. So we must proclaim the gospel, remembering that we are to please the Lord and not man. Paul stresses the importance of this in Galatians chapter 1. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man... I would not be a servant of Christ. Our next section here picks up in verse 7, 7 through 16. I won't read the whole uh, section here, just a few verses beginning in verse 7. But we, are gen we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Uh, skipping down to verse 11, as you know, we were how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. So the second picture that we have in this section is that God wants us to minister as caring parents. God wants us to minister as caring parents. Now, there's a, this is a big section. We'll try and break this up as best we can. In verses 7 to 8, Paul discusses being like a nursing mother. That seems kind of odd for the apostle to do, but we'll, we'll discuss this a little bit. Paul shifts from what he was just saying and shows that though he and Silas had authority in the Lord, they tempered their authority through love and were gentle or kind to the new converts there in Thessalonica, these new infant or baby Christians. How does a nursing mother cherish or take care of her children? They gently yet securely hold the child to their chest. As the mother gives of her life through providing milk for her baby, so Paul and Silas figuratively gave of themselves for feeding of the new Christians in Thessalonica. They gave even our own souls to, for you, our own lives for you. The word that Paul uses here, cherish, is only used twice in the New Testament, and both in a figurative sense. It is used here, as he figuratively says, like nursing mothers, like a nursing mother cherishing her own baby. But he also uses it in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29, of how a husband should care for and cherish his wife as the Lord did the church. It appears that Paul and the others showed their affection for the Thessalonian believers through more than just giving them the gospel, but found ways to help with physical needs as well. 
though the physical needs were in some ways a secondary concern compared to the message of eternal life and the gospel. In verses 9 to 12, we have a concerned father. Paul and the others behaved as concerned fathers, as it were. As, he, as we said in verse 6, they could have required these believers to support them financially, but they didn't. Their concern, especially Paul's, was not to burden them. So they labored and they toiled. They worked. They were examples of working as a means of paying for food and supplies, yet they continued to do the work of the ministry in preaching the gospel to them. Now we can speculate of what this looked like, that maybe he worked as a tent maker as he did in Corinth, or that he worked throughout the day and taught the church in the evening, likely doing as much preaching and teaching during the day and night as he could. But Paul reminds them also of the behavior of the missionaries that they had when they were with the church. Despite the charge that they taught from impure motives, back in verse 3, Paul reminds the believers that they are witnesses to that Paul, to what Paul and others, how they lived consistently with what they preached. That their behavior was holy or devout, righteous or just, and blameless. Par parents have responsibilities to train and educate their children. In the culture of the Greco-Roman world, and even in first century Judaism, that responsibility primarily fell to the father, especially for their sons. Just as Paul likened the missionaries to a tender, nursing mothers, so he now likens them to fathers through their strong appeals, how they, how they exhorted the believers, and consoling in consoling encouragement, how they comforted them. That these were designed to inspire correct behaviors as well as urging them or charged them. Paul and the others were teaching the Thessalonians what a Christian life looked like and that they, and that they would live a life worthy of God, worthy of the calling that they had. Now, as we move down into verses 13 and 16, we also have this idea of a joyful parent. Part of that worthy walk for the Thessalonians is growing up and following Jesus on their own. Paul again gives thanks because of the reception of the Gospels that, from the Thessalonians. This young church heard and received Paul's teaching of the Gospel for what it was, the Gospel of God, the Word of God, and not just the Word of men, not just some philosophy. It is the truth, and that is how the Thessalonian believers received it. Paul was able to watch this church as a parent watching a child grow from his or her own family. The church 
the church not only received the word, they applied and lived as Paul had. He said in chapter 1, you became imitators of us, not only of us, but of Christ. They grew and they applied what they had been taught to their own lives. Therefore, the Thessalonian church suffered the same opposition that he had. They had to face the same unbelieving Jews that made such a stink when Paul was there. They had to face unbelieving Greeks and other Gentiles in town as they were proclaiming the gospel. But more than just Paul, they faced the same suffering that the churches in Judea faced. And that's what Paul brings out here. The churches in Judea faced persecution from their own neighbors, their own countrymen, and their own families, just like the church, the church in Thessalonica. Paul then moves on discussing how those, especially uh, the, the, the unbelieving Jews that were uh, being such a hindrance or an opposition, he comments here about how serious it is to be hindering the gospel and yet reveals an element of God's mercy and long-suffering as he allows individuals to continue down their path. While God patiently waits while sinners rebel, their sin and judgment fill until God in his time dispenses judgment. And some of the point is that these Jews that Paul is referencing to, that some of them, they, their judgment is full. Now, Paul was not being overly harsh. He did not have any malice towards the Jews that were persecuting or, or encouraging persecution. If you don't believe that, go read Romans 9, verses 1 through 5. Paul was saying, if it were possible, I would have myself accursed so that they would know Christ. So Paul was not having any malice or harsh feelings towards them. Not at all. But he stated the fact that the Jews, especially the ones in Judea, killed Christ as their fathers had killed the prophets. They persecuted the church and himself. Yet the news of the gospel was sounding forth from Thessalonica in spite of the hardships. The mother, in the giving of her own life through nursing, this a healthy mother eats for her own nutritional needs, yet that food is transformed as she is able to provide milk for her baby. If she doesn't eat, she doesn't drink enough water, then she cannot care for the baby. In the same way, a mature Christian who disciples a new Christian, the older Christian must continually feed themselves on the Word as much as they help the younger Christians understand it. But just as a real baby must begin to grow and begin eating solid foods, so the new Christian must move past the milk, as Peter calls it, the pure milk of the word. 
They must move to solid food. They must move to meat. Paul references this in 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, and the he writer of Hebrews discusses it in Hebrews 5, 11-14. Christians must grow and move to the solid food. They must eat bread. Matthew 4, Jesus says, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the Father. And in John 6, he calls himself the bread of life. And we must move on from the milk even to honey. Psalm 119.103, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Each of us as believers should be discipling or should be discipled by another believer. The more mature or older Christians should be careful, though, to teach and yet be an encouragement to those that they disciple so that there is growth and reproduction. You disciple someone so that they grow to be a discipler of someone who will grow to be a discipler of someone who will grow to be a discipler. Growth means, though, growing pains. And in the church, that can and will look like opposition to a biblical lifestyle and beliefs. But while those that seek to hinder the gospel will face wrath to the uttermost, as Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians 2, the believer can rest assured that he or she is saved to the uttermost. In Hebrews 7, verse 25. Leading someone to the Lord is only producing a disciple. A spiritual parent then has the responsibility to now help that new believer grow, to exhort and model a Christian life, to see him or her do the same with someone else. So who are you discipling? All believers are disciples, and disciples are re re Produce, that is to make more disciples than make more disciples. This brings us down to verse 17, verses 17 to 20. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope? or joy, or crown of rejoicing. Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Our third picture is that God wants us to minister as loving siblings. Loving siblings. In verse 17, for the fourth time in the chapter, Paul calls the Thessalonian believers brethren or brothers. And of course, the idea here that it is not just of the men, but it's brothers and sisters. The idea here is that as a fellow believer, as fellow believers, they are all in God's family together. Thus, brothers and sisters in Christ. But Paul really cared for these believers. He saw himself as one of them. 
yet he had to leave them. He was forced to leave them. The verb that he uses in verse 17 is only used here in the New Testament. The New King James translates it as taken away. The ESV reads torn away. The verb literally means to be orphaned. Paul was orphaned away from the Thessalonians. That's what he's getting across to them. That he cared so much for them as brothers and sisters, and yet he was orphaned away from them. It wasn't by his own design that he wanted to leave. Paul assured them that he was only physically absent from them. His heart, his care and affection, his thoughts were constantly on them. He loved them, he prayed for them, he wanted to see them again. And yet he says in verse 18 that Satan hindered them. Paul blames Satan for keeping Silas and himself from returning to Thessalonica. Paul wanted to return to continue with spiritual help of this young church, and that alone would be of God's will. Thus, any, any hindrance would be against the will of God. And even if that hindrance was from human opposition, ultimately Satan is at the root of that opposition. Paul emphasizes here that his, Paul emphasizes his desire to return to Thessalonica by inserting his own name here. He doesn't do this very often. Perhaps at this point we can suppose that if, if Silas was the penman or Timothy was the tinman, that Paul took the quill in hand and wrote in this comment. Time and again, I, Paul, even myself. However it was done, Paul was stressing that he that this wasn't some nice platitude that he was hoping to return to them, but that he genuinely wanted to return to Thessalonica, to see their faces again, to be with them again, to encourage them again. And as we move down into verses 19 and 20, he says that they are his reward. These verses are, the, are, are this chapter's sole reference to the return of Christ. In chapter 1, he, Paul related Christ's return as a, to salvation. Here, he relates it to Christian service. Paul was able to minister so effectively, so faithfully and lovingly for this church, to this church, because he saw them in the light of Christ's return. Paul tells these believers that when he stands at the judgment seat of Christ, they, there would be no greater reward than standing there before Christ with them. He hoped in their growth and maturity as a parent watching their child grow. They gave him joy as he thought about the darkness they were in and where they were now by God's grace. They were his crown. To Paul, they represented God's blessing in his life and ministry. Paul tells them that he would be rejoicing over them in the presence of Christ. As Jesus endured the cross, 
Hebrews tells us that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. I think likely some of that joy, if not all of it, is, would be that of presenting his church to the Father. That's referenced in Jude verse 24. Paul endured a number of sufferings and hardships for the same joy to present this church before Christ to the Father. They were his reward. They were his joy. Paul knew and stressed, excuse me, the great affection would have, this great affection would have removed any question or doubt about Paul's inability to return to Thessalonica. Paul knew and stressed with the Thessalonians that every believer was united through Christ in the family of God. He felt that affection keenly with the Thessalonian church. Paul, Silas, and, and likely Timothy had deep familial affection and love for this church. This group of believers were dear to them. When we are ministering to one another or ministering with each other, we should be developing a close relationship, a deeper relationship. Yes, we are united in Christ. Yes, we are brothers and sisters to each other in Christ. And as a local, and as a local church, this is where that family closeness should be seen. To illustrate this, there's a story of an English Baptist minister, John Fawcett, in the 18th century. He wrote the famed hymn, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. The story is told that while he faithfully and affectionately ministered in a poor, rural area of England, the church saw growth. Yet they were struggling to support his growing family. During this, Fawcett was called to a larger and more influential church in London. Um, apparently the church where uh, the famed minister John Gill pastored. Fawcett had decided to go. He decided to accept that call. The news was announced to the church. The farewell sermon preached. Some items were sold. The wagon was packed. And as the day that they were to leave, many of the church members came to see their beloved pastor and family off. The Fawcett's and the congregation, congregants wept together over this separation. It is said that at one point, Mrs. Fawcett, Mary, told, turned to her husband and said, I cannot stand it, John. I know not how to go. To which he replied, Lord, help me, Mary. Nor can I stand it. We'll unload the wagon. John Fawcett remained at that church for 54 years and preached at a nearby chapel. The story of his departure is said to be the inspiration behind that hymn, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. Most modern hymnals only have the first four stanzas, but there were six in total. Verse 4 speaks of the pain of parting from our Christian or church family. When we asunder apart, it gives us inward pain. 
but we shall still be joined in heart and hope to meet again. While stanza five builds that anticipation over meeting again, this glorious hope revives our courage by the way, while each, is, while each in expectation lives and waits to see the day. Verse, then, verse six expands then on this hope of the future reunion in heaven. From sorrow, toil, and pain, and sin we shall be free, and perfect love and friendship reign through all eternity. It's common in our day, in our culture, to only show other people what we want to show, what we want another to see. It's difficult to take down the walls, to be vulnerable with another. I'm not saying that we need to know every intimate deal, detail and know everything about each other, but we can and do better at taking down the facade of, I'm doing all right. We can do better at taking off that masquerade and wash the painted smiles off and be genuine with each other. Can we do that? Christian fellowship and ministry Discipleship is about doing life together. And when we do life together, we are bound together by more than just a statement of faith, more than just a church covenant or a common belief. We become bound together as friends, as family, by a godly love and affection for each other. So do you know how to minister? God wants us to minister in the right way. And 1 Thessalonians 2 gives us three pictures here. As faithful stewards of the gospel, as caring parents, as we disciple younger believers, and as loving siblings. While it is easy to take the text of 1 Thessalonians 2 and apply it to pastors and pastoral ministry, the basic elements that we see in this passage are for every believer. We each are stewards of the gospel before the Lord. And as we mature and disciple others, we see the pattern of how to mentor or disciple a younger believer. We are each members of the family, not only of the universal church, but most dramatically, in our own local church. Let's close in prayer. Father, as we conclude our time together here in your presence, we are grateful for the wisdom and truth revealed to us through your word today. We thank you for the message of 1 Thessalonians 2, which reminds us of your desire to, to for us to minister in the right way. Lord, we recognize that you have called us to be faithful stewards. Faithful stewards of the gospel entrusted with the precious message of salvation. Help us to always proclaim your truth with integrity and sincerity. Following the example of the Apostle Paul and his companions, grant us the courage and boldness to speak your word boldly 
even in the face of opposition or persecution. Father, we also acknowledge the importance of caring for others with the love and compassion of a parent, just as Paul demonstrated his deep affection for the Thessalonian believers. May we also nurture and encourage those around us, guiding them with gentleness and patience on their journey of faith. Lord, help us to cultivate relationships within the body of Christ that reflect the love and unity of a family. May we be quick to offer support and encouragement to our brothers and sisters in Christ, bearing one another's burdens and rejoicing in each other's victories. As we go forth from this place, may the truths that we have learned today take root in our hearts and bear fruit in our lives. Empower us, Lord, to minister in the right way, faithfully stewarding the gospel, caring for others with the love of a parent, and building up the body of Christ as loving siblings. We commit ourselves afresh to your service, trusting in your strength and guidance every step of the way. We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.